0: Welcome to track two of Thunderball. On this track, we will hear from screenwriter John Hopkins, as well as hear some of a conversation with editor Peter Hunt. We'll begin with our conversation with Peter Hunt, recorded as we watch the film.
1: Hello, my name is Peter Hunt, and I was the editor on the first six James Bonds, the sixth one I also directed myself, um, on a a Secret Service. Um, and it's... Uh, Very interesting to be here, seeing after all this time, Thunderball again.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you uh, got started in the film industry and editing?
1: Yes, I started in the film industry as a clapper boy or a a loader on the camera, camera loader, and uh, worked for a couple of films and a few months in that capacity. And then I was given advice by a very well-known producer who said, you won't, learn to be anything a pre- director or get very far unless you go into the cutting rooms and learn how to, how films are cut and put together. I was young at the time, very young, but I got myself a job in the cutting room as a sort of tea boy can carrier, Designer. and I worked my way up from there. Now, Mark, I'm talking many years ago, 1950 I'm talking about. So it didn't, it, it took quite a time uh, what was the first film that you edited? The first film I edited was in fact the man who watched the trains right. go by a george Simonon film which some of uh, some of your your uh, people may remember um it had a large cast in it and it was a rather large picture and from there I went on to do a whole series of small films and then back again to big pictures and uh, uh, such as, you know, um, Healing Korea and uh, The Amiable Crichton and Cry From the Streets, and big film with, with uh, Orson Welles called Very to Hong Kong, uh, oh, and uh, things like Bismarck and Damn the Defiant and a uh, uh, number of others over a number of years. And then I came to uh, do for Terence Dr. No as an editor.
0: You had known Terence uh, Young for quite some time at yes. that
1: point. Yes, yes, I had. Yes, I'd worked as an assistant in the cutting rooms on several of Terence's uh, earlier films. He was quite an established, well-known film director, of course. Can you talk a little bit about Terence Young, his personality, and what he brought to the Bond films? Oh, yes, indeed. I think that the Bond films owe Terence a great deal. Terence was a man of considerable taste and style, and... Um, I think a much better director than perhaps he was ever given credit for. And it was his style and his uh, personality. You know, every director uh, puts his own personality onto whatever film he does. doesn't matter who it is and what sort of film it is. You'll always see the personality of the director in that. And I think Terence was uh, very instrumental in in giving... uh, for instance, Dr. No, that style. Of course, the first person to do it was James, was Fleming, was Ian Fleming, who who wrote the stories and wrote them in that fashion. But there was no better interpreter of the stories than Terence to uh, put them on the screen.
0: When you became involved with Dr. No, uh, had you, were you familiar with the Bond novels at that time? Yes,
1: I was, as it happened. I'd been in, um, in Hong Kong, where we were making a ferry to Hong Kong with Orson Welles, and my assistant, I was the editor of that film, and my assistant uh, just read, I think, Casino Royal, and asked me whether I'd ever read any of these Ian Fleming Bond films. There, I think there were only a couple of books at that time. And I said, no, no. He said, oh, you must, you must. I'll read them. I'll I'll lend you my copy. And he loaned me his copy. And um, I read it. And I thought, oh, yes, jolly good. Make a good film. But I never had any idea that I would, in fact, be working with them and so largely connected with them uh, as I have been.
0: Now we go to Thunderball's distinctive title sequence by Maurice Binder. except we are going to see it with the song which was originally intended to be heard here.
2: and leaves them, a pity if it grieves them, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang.
0: What you've just heard is an alternate title song for Thunderball which was originally going to be used, sung by Dionne Warwick Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. The music intro for it may seem long but it was decided that since the title of the song was not going to be Thunderball, that the lyrics would not begin until after the title Thunderball appeared on the screen. We're now in Paris during a sequence that was shot at the same time of the pre-credit sequence and back with Peter Hunt who will tell us a little bit about Albert Broccoli and Harry
1: Saltzman two very fine producers, in fact, both in different ways and both very different personalities. But they came together, I don't know the the ins and outs of all that, in an arrangement to produce and get the finance uh, to make these. In fact, I think they only got the finance to make one or two to start with. But with their success, of course, they went on. And both gentlemen, both Harry and Cubby, Um, over the years became friends, great friends of mine, especially Cubby, and um, I think that both of them had tremendous input into the uh, producing of these films. They were very clever producers. They spent a lot of time on the pre-production of the films and making sure that this style and well, not so much the style but making sure that the production values would be available uh, and that price and money would be as little of a worry to the creators such as the director and other people and art director and people like that and they were extremely contributive to the um, imagination of the various uh, modern gimmicks, et cetera, um, That that I think they could be. They also had this great talent of leaving you to get on with it, having employed you, which was their greatest talent. I think a producer's greatest talent can be getting a crew together, getting a group together that can all work, and leaving them to get on with their film, being absolutely confident that what you've got together is the best that you can or, you know, those that will really work together. And that's exactly what they did. And I think as such, they were both fine producers. Individually, they were also producers, you must remember. I mean, Carby has produced a number of films, a great number of films uh, before the Bonds. And Harry Saltzman was, uh, was really one of the earlier producers for the for such films as um, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, and um, Battle of Britain, earlier films such as uh, Look Back in Anger, very big films, very contributory to the to the you know, history of the cinema.
0: It is interesting to contrast this scene in the Spectre boardroom in Paris with the later conference room scene where Bond and the other 00 agents are informed of the hijacking of the atomic bombs. Both Bond and Largo are the last to arrive, making each seem more important because the meetings will not proceed without them. Both rooms, which were designed by Ken Adam, contain maps, moving bits of furniture, and other high-tech devices. But Spectre's modern boardroom has a low ceiling, chrome walls, and looks as impersonal as Blofeld's White Cat. The conference room at Her Majesty's Secret Service, on the other hand, represents a comfortable British Empire image an expanded version of M's office with wood paneling, antique furniture, and touches of art. These design elements help establish touchstones for the audience and have brought the Bond films international acclaim for their production design.
3: Mm.
4: In about half an hour, Pat. I'll be ready. I've heard that before. Oh, nice to have met you, Mr. Uh,
5: Bond. Mm.
3: Funny looking bruise. Full.
5: A poker. In the hands of a widow.
3: I'm surprised. I'd have thought you were just the type for a widow.
5: Oh, not this one. He didn't like me at
0: all. Now back to our conversation with Peter Hunt. Thunderball was produced during the height of the James Bond phenomenon after the the tremendous success of Goldfinger. Originally, the film after Mm. Goldfinger was going to be on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And then, uh, because of the deal with Kevin McClory and the outstanding rights to Thunderball... Uh they decided to make Thunderball as the next film. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the atmosphere of the James Bond phenomenon going into this?
1: Well, by now, when we got into Thunderball, uh, you know, we were quite a big team, and we were quite uh, confident and and, uh, assured of what we were doing. Uh, I don't think... uh, other than that assurance and that wonderful confidence we had of knowing that we were on uh, a sort of group of successful pictures uh, It couldn't be more optimistic. It couldn't be more enjoyable And of course by that time the films would be so financially successful that we didn't have a uh, You know Ken Adam was not trying desperately to skimp and scrape in order to put uh, a set together <laughs> and uh, I think there was a great deal of uh, feeling of, uh, you know, we'd been prosperous and we'd done it and uh, we knew what we were doing. Confidence was what was there and that was great because I think it added to the style of the picture. We also had back the, the great stylist of the films, Terence Young.
0: In the early Bond films, a number of the artists were revoiced.
1: Yeah, that was left for me to do as the editor and various things, uh, we only revoiced when when any artists, uh, foreign artists mostly, became um, a little difficult to hear. And uh, the producers were always very keen to make sure that uh, dialogue would be understood by the large American market that we've now got. Uh, so on occasions, only on occasions we carefully revoiced, but it was left for me to revoice them. And I learned a trick some time back that well, like the, the way to revoice them was to find some the same timbre as the voice that you're using, that you're your revoicing. And therefore, I did auditions for voices, as it were. And uh, uh, that was the secret of it. And then the other thing is that you have to be very careful about it. You have to, be, you have to take time and care in actually revo- in actually you know, recording the voices.
0: One of the things in the opening of this curtain, later that curtain is opened with mm-hmm. a tremendous mm-hmm. sound effect of almost like a tearing sheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you worked very closely with uh, Norman Wanstall, who was the uh, dubbing editor. Uh, on the early Bond films and won an Academy Award for Goldfinger. Uh, Thunderball has equally amazing sound effects in there. Can you talk a little bit about the sound effects and the use of sound in the early Bond films and in Thunderball?
1: Yes. Well, apart from Norman Wansall, who used to be my assistant, I I gave him a chance to be the sound editor on the thing. You must remember also that Pinewood Studios was a marvellous recording studio and, and a great deal of the sounds... Um, apart from the tracks being chosen and sometimes shot by Norman uh, the actual product that you get here is due to the recordist and the sound man in the in the theatre at uh, at Pinewood a guy called Mac actually who is no longer with us I'm afraid but who was superb with dialogue and and uh, recording effects and I think he really is entitled to a large amount of the Compliments for the sound for the of the of the effects. All these are shot by me <laughs> I nearly went mad with this sequence, I will tell
0: you. Indeed, Peter Hunt's editing and cutaways, coupled with John Barry's score, make this scene an audience favorite. The scene is straight out of Fleming's novel, and because Bond is trapped and enduring real pain, it gives his character a bit of humanity. In 1979, director Louis Gilbert would use the concept of this scene in Moonraker for a set piece where Bond is trapped in a centrifuge. Back to Peter Hunt, who remembers doing second unit work for director Terence Young.
1: With Terence, as we went on, of course, you know, he often, uh, mainly because of schedules and things like that, would leave over various shots, like close-ups and additional things, and he would actually say, you know, I know we need some more here, there, and the bits and pieces, and often he'd say to me, go and shoot them, go and shoot them for me, go and shoot. And, of course, in the Bond films, where we had several units, it wasn't very difficult to shoot them. So whilst he would do this sort of, main shots with the artists, it was left to me to really get them together to try and make uh, something exciting out of them. See all this sort of thing was Terence. This was a lovely idea. Uh, Terence did uh, the whole idea, but the, the excitement and the extra close-ups and, and uh, inserts and all those things I would generally shot on another stage
0: Well, Terence was notorious for shooting uh, very small, the minimum amount of coverage necessary. Was he?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he did. They had, I must tell you, that they did have a terrible time with the very first one. It's really rather remarkable that it did turn out the way it did. And it turned out the way it did, as I say, because of the style that was injected into it and luck. And the time uh, that we made the film, the audiences wanted something that was going to be of the cinema, as that little girl said, you know. Uh, Something that was uh, enjoyable, entertaining and had style and had story. And uh, we were lucky in that. But on Doctor No, we had terrible bad weather in Jamaica. They were they couldn't shoot the various sequences. We had no money. It was the first of the series. So it was very difficult, in fact. In fact, various scenes were, were not complete. And with a style of editing that I introduced in those days, which, of course, now everybody does. But you must remember, in those days, they didn't. That style of editing was part of the reason, the fast pace. Um, mm-hmm. Sequence was the reason that, in fact, uh, I think the film was uh, successful. Another reason, let's say, part of the job.
0: On, uh, we're coming up to a, a special effect here done by John Steers, uh, where An- the character Angelo has to face his double. Oh yes, um, great. Uh, in yeah. the, um, Major Duvall has to face his double, Mr. Mm. Angelo. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, that was done, or?
1: Uh, well, I talk about it. I don't. I don't know whether I should, really. But, <laughs> but I mean, it, all, it is all to do with the, uh, you know, after all, uh, filmmaking is trickery. Filmmaking is... Um, that's back projection, you see. That's how that's done. So that was shot as a plate, what we call a plate. And it was back projected out there through that door. Now. If you were to rewind that and look at that, you'd see how simple it was to do. Simple but very effective. Yes, very effective because the quality of the back projection was very good. Often in the early days, not so much now because now you get marvelous quality and high stock and all that, but in in, uh, in the earlier days, you, you often were aware I mean, I'm sure we've all been aware of seeing the old films and those driving shots with people in a car. You'd know it's back projection. It looks like it. It's pretty awful. But that was well done, and I didn't hold it long, you see. I held it for the minimum amount of frames that I needed, and only that.
0: John Steers won an Academy Award for the special effects on Thunderball. Uh, Exactly. Part of that, I think, is in the editing of the special effects and trimming them down yeah, to yeah. minimal. Well,
1: that all helps, you know. That is all part of filmmaking as such, which is what I think, you know, as I say, is an illusion I'm the cinema, the and it should stay that way. But uh, it, if you have a sense of timing and are very careful about things and you realize their dramatic uh, necessity within the story, then you should be able to edit it properly so that... No, no. People do not become aware and conscious of special effects and things. You can't do special effects and put them up there and say to the audience, look how clever I am, look at this lovely special effects, you know. That's against the making of a film. That's against the illusion of filmmaking. They shouldn't be noticeable. And in order that they shouldn't be noticeable, they should be properly edited. I shot all this well they're good sir. i'd forgotten about Please, that <laughs> yes oh my goodness thank you sir terrible day too and this all this shortage, and as we became yeah, as we work more and more together of course terence and i became very close about that and i think he had a confidence in me which I hope I, I, I endorsed for him. And, and um, it was it was very nice because he used to give me, all this a shot, he used to give me so many things to do, especially if the schedule got tight or something like that. He'd say, Peter, go off and shoot this for me, go and do this for me. All these wipes in Thunderball are very carefully worked out by me because I wanted to set a technical style on the film, which was a little different from other films uh, at that time. And if you see, there is not a mix in Thunderball at all. You wipe from one scene to the other, what we call wipe. In other words, you slide across the screen, uh, one film, one scene to the other the whole time. And they're all carefully timed and worked out. And if an artist moves left to right, you wipe with the artist left to right. If an artist moves right to left, you I wipe with the artist left uh, the other way around, right to left. And that they, although, and again, part of the whole idea of filmmaking, which is an illusion, an audience is not supposed to be aware of that. And I hope that they won't be. Uh, but it'll be there, it'll be subliminally there for them and they'll be conscious of it subliminally. But uh, they won't be aware of it, and they shouldn't be aware of, uh, of technical you know, tricks, as it were.
0: Thunderball had a n- number of units, uh, underwater yes, unit, an aerial yes. unit in Nassau, yes. your second unit, yes. um, Terrence's main unit, obviously. Uh, can you talk about trying to take footage from all those different units and making a, a one single unified style out of it? <laughs>
1: well, that's the, that's the entire, you know, that, that's the, uh, what should I say, the the expertise of editing, you know, when you think of the enormous amount of footage uh, uh, that is brought in on a film, most films anyway, certainly as big a film as Thunderball was, as you say, with all those units going and all that, you know, you, you, have to be experienced about editing in order to be able to keep before you um a style of editing that you've got that's why i say it's very difficult when films today's particularly have two or three credits to the to editors you know i don't know how three editors edit a film i'm sure and often you can see it uh, it, it looks like three different films but uh, it is a big Big job, and you have to be dedicated to it and follow through with everything.
3: Hmm.
0: We're coming up on some classic Peter Hunt editing Uh, (laughs) the man being pulled through the window. Where you oh,
1: yeah, well, you know, classic only because uh, it didn't quite work, did it? But um, with a smart piece of scissoring as I call it, we made it work. And we didn't hang about, did we? <laughs> we soon got away from it. It was the impression, anyway. You didn't need, uh, you only needed to get the impression. You saw all that there, the shadow coming, and the guy's hand. What more did you need? Nothing more, boom, away.
0: But you speeded this little segment of film up here, even though it doesn't seem- Did I? That much speeded up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I often did those things in order to give us, uh, to compliment what I thought was going to be a sound, you know, to compliment on it and make it, um, and make it a bit exciting.
3: No, it most certainly could not. Oh, no. Haven't you had enough exercise for one evening?
5: Uh, it's funny you should say that.
0: Beginning on this side, we will start hearing from John Hopkins, one of the writers who worked on Thunderball. Manual to
5: auto. Right, set on automatic. Commandant, would you care to change places with the co-pilot? Better view up here. I'd be delighted to. Scanning.
0: Hopkins was born in London and studied at St. Catherine's College in Cambridge. His career began with the BBC Radio as a studio manager. He started writing drama while working at England's Granada Radio Network, producing several short plays. Hopkins returned to the BBC as a television writer, working on the influential and award winning series Zed Cars. Interestingly, Zed Cars featured a young actress, Judy Dinch who would later go on to play M in 1995's GoldenEye. In 1964, John Hopkins left the BBC to pursue other writing opportunities. After Thunderball, John Hopkins wrote the acclaimed triptych of television plays, Talking to a Stranger. Later, Hopkins would team with Sean Connery again to make a film of his play, The Offense, a powerful drama of a cop who loses control. The film was made by United Artists, as part of their deal with Sean Connery to lure him back to the role of 007 for 1971's Diamonds Are Forever. John Hopkins also wrote the outstanding miniseries, Smiley's People, based on the Jean le Carré novel, and more recently, Hiroshima, for Showtime Cable Network, a forceful, dramatized presentation on the dropping of the first atomic bomb. Hopkins is married to acclaimed actress Shirley Knight and continues to write for films and television Thunderball proved to be Hopkins' first freelance assignment. It all began with a meeting with Harry Saltzman, where Hopkins came to talk about writing a very different type of spy film.
6: Meeting Harry Saltzman was somewhat of an event to a young lad who had mainly done television up until this point. And going to his office was like going to prison. You were taken in, you were put in a place to await the attention of this amiable man who was completely incapable of letting a telephone ring. He had a dozen people who would pick up the telephone for him if they could only beat him to the telephone. But they very, very rarely did. And uh, there was a time some years later I was at London Airport waiting to go to uh, America and the airport was fogged in <laughs> and standing in a line of maybe 50 people, anxious businessmen, was Harry Saltzman waiting to get to the phone. And I think it's the most tortured face I'd ever seen as he watched and counted and waited and sent minions off to other telephones to see if he could get a- ahead of the line there but he was a great man, and many films were started or finished because Harry Pocket was always open. I was hired by Harry Saltzman to write the screenplay for Funeral in Berlin, um, which was a series of films, as you know, with Michael Caine that um, had already begun with the Epcrest Fire* and went on very successfully the next few years. But Harry Saltzman uh, told my agent that he felt he needed to know me a bit before I was launched on a project as expensive was the word nobody used, but uh, that's what they meant. Uh, Taking the risk with this person who'd only written television. I was moved on to Thunderball because Harry was using that as, as he said, as a means to get to know me.
0: John Hopkins remembers traveling to Paris where the opening of Thunderball was being filmed, an event timed to coincide with the French premiere of Goldfinger. The
6: The first thing I did was catch a plane to Paris to write the sequence that um, begins Thunderball. But it was taken as an opportunity to open the film in Paris on the Champs-Elysees uh, while Sean was actually in Paris for the filming, because Sean was not easy to get to premieres. I think I think he missed all the Thunderball premieres, but, but who can blame him when at the um, Paris premiere he was harming none, sitting in his car, driving up to the front of the cinema when somebody, some young lady, threw herself parallel with the ground, through the driver's window, into his lap. It was a spectacular, it was, I felt, when I saw this, I was standing um, on the sidewalk, watching the girls go by, and uh, I dumbfounded, I thought, I'm really in film land now. They're They're throwing themselves through windows. The man's drowning.
0: John Hopkins discusses writing for the villain of Thunderball, Emilio Largo.
6: His identity as an Italian was never a matter of issue uh, in the course of the film, because he was a member of Spectre, he had a great deal of money, he had so many other characteristics to deal with, and his, his relationship with Domino was so um, cruel. And there were plenty to dislike about him without extra curricular like gender and nationality. I, my problem with Largo, and this is nothing to do with Adolfo Ched, he was more of a dilettante than I felt the villain should be. Um, Gert Fruber was a, a force of nature. I wanted to find something in Largo that would make us cringe <laughs> and feel threatened because uh, Sean ad- added to the fact that Sean, had al- this was his fourth Bond film. Sean had already acquired a such scale as a hero that um, anyone who's going up against him in a had to be some spectacular. Character Thunderball seems to me, in a way, the most developed statement about James Bond, um, perhaps because the villain in Goldfinger is so overpowering that Bond is. I don't know if you've noticed, Bond is a prisoner for a large part of Goldfinger. Um, there's an aspect of that. We often... I remember having conversations with Terence Young about the fact that your hero in the Bond films was always getting himself captured and put in a a cell and locked away. And then he is a passive observer of the events, rather than the driving force. Of course when they get to the climax of the film uh, Bond seizes all the pieces of the uh, structure and unites it in his
0: victorious thrust. This lengthy underwater sequence sets up the larger underwater climax to come. Some critics and even director Terence Young have complained that the underwater segments in Thunderball slow the film down. Indeed, at the time of its release Thunderball was the longest of the Bond films, but the underwater sequences also add an elegance to the film and a sense of mystery and sensuality which works well with the story of seduction and cruelty. As for the villain, Emilio Largo, the filmmakers had fun playing off his act of piracy. He is given a pirate's patch over one eye and on the ship he often wears a double-breasted blue blazer, which is reminiscent of the stolen brass button captains jackets worn by pirates in the 17th and 18th centuries. All of this is subtle fun, with no overt jokes or slapstick, much like giving the specter divers black outfits. It was one of Terence Young's ways of letting the viewer know that he was in on the joke.
5: Is, sir. Number one on the scramble.
7: Number two speaking.
5: Phase two completed. Number two has done well. Unlike Count Lippet, whose choice of Angelo might have jeopardized the success of our project. Send a message to the execution branch.
0: We're coming up on another inside joke, which comes courtesy of Sean Connery. As James Bond leaves Shrublins, Nurse Fearing wants to know when she will see him again. He tells her, another time, another place. That also happens to be the title of Sean Connery's first major film, where he had a modest role opposite Lana Turner.
2: Keep
5: in touch.
3: Anytime, James, any place.
5: Another time, another place.
0: Notice here how the license plate on the Aston Martin DB5 is obscured. This is because some of this scene was shot with the film flipped, reversing the image, Thus, the license plate number for the DB5 would read backwards when shown on film. Now back to screenwriter John Hopkins.
6: An element in Bond which I don't think had ever affected British film before is the extraordinary casual brutality of events. The morality of film was that no one got away with blowing people up in their motor cars. The brutality of much that happened in Bond seems to me no one ever excused it. They said it was a fact. And I think that aspect of Bond's philosophy is much more interesting than the, um, shaken, not stirred. Look at that. I think that's the first time that a girl took off a helmet and revealed her gender by the length of her hair.
0: James Bond has always been a global phenomenon, and thus we've included on this laser disc some foreign language versions of a few scenes. We begin with 007 in French.
8: Puisque nous sommes tous là... Le Premier ministre a demandé au ministre de l'Intérieur... de bien vouloir le représenter ici aujourd'hui. Monsieur le ministre de l'Intérieur. Messieurs, l'enregistrement que nous vous ferons écouter... a été reçu au 10 Downing Street dans la matinée. Mon cher Premier ministre, deux bombes atomiques numéro 456 et 457 qui étaient à bord du vol de l'OTAN 759, sont actuellement en possession du spectre. Si dans les sept jours à venir, votre gouvernement ne nous verse pas la somme de 100 millions de livres sterling, d'une façon qui vous sera communiquée par nous, nous détruirons une grande ville d'Angleterre ou des États-Unis d'Amérique. Veuillez-nous signifier votre acceptation de nos conditions en faisant en sorte que la cloche Big Ben sonne sept coups. À 6 heures de l'après-midi, demain. Le Premier ministre et le Président en ont discuté par la ligne directe. Et ils sont d'accord. À moins que ces bombes ne soient récupérées, le paiement de cette somme devra être effectué. Afin d'éviter une panique générale, le silence le plus absolu vous est demandé. Aucun communiqué à la presse. Le Premier ministre désire que ce soit vos services qui se chargent de cette opération. Je vous remercie. Sir John Ce cercle représente le rayon d'action complet de ce vulcain. Les recherches poussées n'ont pu le localiser ni nous fournir une preuve de catastrophe ou d'atterrissage forcé. Les rapports des stations des terrains suffisamment grands pour que le vulcain puisse se poser sont négatifs. Nous ne savons rien d'autre. Merci, monsieur le maréchal. Eh bien, à vous de suivre l'affaire. Gardons le contact par le premier ministre. Merci. Vous pouvez ouvrir les dossiers qui sont devant vous, messieurs. de l'affaire opération Tenair. Ainsi que vous le voyez, nous avons peu de données. Tous les
0: membres de l'équipe the name of the company credited with the photo of Domino and her brother. Hunt photo named after editor Peter Hunt, who shot this insert. Now back to Bond in French.
8: Ce sera tout jusqu'à ce que vous discutiez de vos affectations individuelles avec moi. Je vous ai affecté à la station C au Canada. Le groupe Captain Pritchard assurera votre liaison avec l'aviation. Monsieur, je suggère respectueusement que vous changiez mon affectation pour Nassau. Y a-t-il une autre raison, à part votre jeune enthousiasme pour les sports nautiques Peut-être bien ceci. Oui, alors Il y avait la photographie de cet homme dans le dossier que vous avez remis. Il s'appelle Derval. Eh bien, je l'ai vu hier soir à Schroeblands. Oui, mais mort déjà. Ah non, c'est impossible. On l'a vu embarquer sur le Vulcan et s'envoler hier soir. Si 007 dit qu'il a vu Derval hier soir à Chreblande et qu'il était mort, cela suffit pour que j'ouvre une enquête. Bien, oui, oui, sans doute, monsieur. Et cette fille C'est la jeune sœur de Derval. Ah, vous savez où elle est Un assaut. Selon vous, elle mérite qu'on la recherche. Ce n'est pas le terme que j'emploierai, monsieur. Nous n'avons que quatre jours, 007. Ne perdez pas votre temps à ne rien faire. Non, monsieur, Jamais. Bonne chance. Merci, monsieur.
0: Now back to our conversation with Peter Hunt. I don't
8: that
3: has At the
0: time of Thunderball, the Bond film still had a unique feel editing-wise that, that uh, other editors had not caught up with the techniques that uh, you and Terence Young had introduced in Dr.
1: No. Uh, they were fast doing it. <laughs> I mean, you must remember, I had a phrase that I was continually quoting to our producers whenever we had uh, certain, whenever I wanted to get something specially done, I always used to say we we must be careful not to become imitators of our imitators, and it's true because by then, by the time Doctor no, uh, by the time Thunderball came out, you must remember we had started to get the Matt Helms, which I don't know whether you remember them, but they were an imitation James Bond, and. Everybody else was trying to get onto the same wheel, or the same bandwagon as the Bond films were, because they were very successful, as happens always, you know. Uh, They were never quite the same. So we had to make sure that we were not the same, that we were much better.
0: Can you talk a little bit about some of the editing techniques uh, that you would use? Film editing is not a
1: question of just joining all these bits together you have to give it a shape and a sense of timing. And timing is a very important thing, very, very important thing indeed. Noel Coward taught me that. I once worked on a film with Noel Coward and it was extraordinary what I learned about timing. And you have to have a sense of that. You also have to have a sense of shaping a sequence. and and. Um, The other thing, of course, I'm old-fashioned, I suppose I was taught that you must always make sure that all your artists and people in the film look, look good, look right, and act good and act right. So you use editing as a means to make sure your film is getting more and more professional. I had a small theory always that you read the script and it has wonderful descriptions of things and characters and people and shots and sunsets and rain and thunderstorms. And things like. You come to shoot the film and, boy, you compromise all over the place. It isn't a sunset. There isn't a storm. Uh, you've got an actor who can't really do it, but you're trying to get the best out of him. Now, it's up to the editor, when we've got all that back, to put it back into the film what was required from the script. It all sounds a bit highfalutin, I know. But in fact, that is the truth of the matter. So you must do everything with film, in the editing of it, to give it the polish and the finish, that originally the story and the script called for. Sounds a bit pompous, doesn't it? It's true, actually. <laughs> The worst thing in any film, any film of this style, any film of an action adventure, or maybe other stories, too, that lend themselves to never use a fade out. Audience immediately get time to resettle in their seats or go and buy popcorn or whatever like that. Never let the screen go black. Always keep something moving on the screen.
0: One of the other things about this film and, and most of the early Bond films is that uh, you really do not cut to very many close-ups uh, during the course of the film, and usually only for a moment where you're really trying to get some sort of specific impact.
1: That's the boy. That's the reason for close-ups. I worked for a long time from, with a wonderful old film producer called Victor Saville, and he used to say to me, Oh, treat your close-ups like pearls! <laughs> and I never forget him saying that to me. And, in fact, of course, uh, if you're shaping a sequence such as this one where where they're talking or whatever they're doing, you don't always need close-ups. See, it had a glamorous look, you know, it had a marvellous look. Uh, Today, you see films that have got glamorous backgrounds that they shoot, really, for TV. They wouldn't have this. They would shoot just a close two-shot or whatever, you know? And you've lost all that great ambience that we were trying to put into the style. That's what I call a style, too. We gave the audience something always that they could uh, feel was glamorous, that they
0: could wish for. Let's take a moment to listen to James Bond as he sounds in Italian.
4: Posso farne la oh, no. La vedrò di nuovo.
3: L'isola piccola.
4: Potremmo cenare insieme? No. Mia cara ed evasiva Dominó. Come io... fa
3: a saperlo? Come fa a sapere che i miei amici mi chiamano Dominó?
4: E sul braccialetto che ha la caviglia.
3: Ah sì? Che occhietti aguzzi che ha.
4: E non ha sentito i miei denti?
2: Andiamo domani alla spiaggia.
4: 200 200 libro banco col banco banco banco, banco sale
9: carta carta
4: otto vita la qualcuno deve pur perdere sì infatti ho visto uno spettro dietro le sue spalle Cos'è che ha visto? Lo spettro della sconfitta La sua fortuna doveva cambiare Si fa presto a vederlo Vogliamo elevare il limite a 500 sterline è sollevo Banco Mi ritiro anch'io Forse preferisce tenere Banco Al mio amico non dispiacerà Signor? Bond Ah si, sì, il signor Bond Uno dei miei soci mi ha parlato di lei Niente di male, spero Un banco di 500 lire oh, Il suo spettro contro il mio, allora Il banco è fe. Lei mi vuol mettere addosso il malocchio, eh? Sappiamo come regolarci in questi casi dalle mie parti Mi esorcizzi pure, vediamo che effetto fa sulle carte Nessuno. No. Sette Sette alla punta. Sei Banco Banco suivi Vita la Ponte no Naffa la Ponte
3: Lei sembra
4: imbattibile, signor Bono Queste cose in genere non durano
3: Emilio, mi avevi promesso di offrirmi un
4: drink Subito, cara Però prima vorrei rifarmi Posso offrire io? Gliene sarei molto grato, grazie Allora passo a banco La me il
3: Banco (laughs)
4: <laughs>
0: Claudine Auger, Adolfo Celli, and Rick Van Neuter were dubbed for Thunderball. Peter Hunt worked very closely on revoicing the actors so they could be well understood by a British and American audience.
1: Perfect for what I was saying before, which sounded all a bit pompous, I know, but the idea is you must make this artist as good as you can in the editing even if it means revoicing her or whatever. But you don't publicize the fact. No. You don't take away from her professionalism as an actress or, for that matter, Adolfa Jelly.
0: Well, she certainly had a, a very illustrious career, actually. Yes, she's done a is, number of films. Um, yes,
1: yeah, she's lovely.
0: And did a number of films in France before? Yes, that's know?
1: right. Well, French, she would have done them in French anyway, but um, which is fine. That's why, again, as I say, you must, we one must not take away from them one must always work to make them better in cutting in in everything in whatever else whatever you can do
3: the way you
2: hold me
5: How long are you staying on
0: here in Coming up, are Peter here Hunt is about tomorrow. to violate his own rule of editing an action film, putting in a partial fade out at the end of this scene. He, he has a good excuse, a wonderful shot of Domino looking back at Bond as she leaves in Largo's boat. The fade out also gives a strong emotional emphasis to the scene. It also disguises a problem well, Peter Hunt faced. Sort of as mentioned on the other analog track, this scene at the Cafe Martinique has been moved to follow Bond's meeting with Domino poolside at the Coral Harbor Hotel. Peter Hunt has to use a bit of editing trickery, to make visual sense of the scene he has moved. It is a classic editor's dilemma. Peter Hunt needs a wide shot of the lobby of the Coral Harbor Hotel to establish the new location. But the only shot he has is of Bond walking away from the lobby desk. Since part of this scene takes place at the lobby desk, many editors would simply make a bad cut, but not Peter Hunt. He uses a more creative technique to solve the problem, look closely at the first shot of Bond in the lobby. He is actually walking away from the front desk, which he now approaches. Also, all of the material at the front desk has been flipped so that the receptionist can look in the correct direction to follow Bond up the stairs. As James Bond hunts for Largo's henchmen in his suite, We should take some time to look at the career of composer John Barry. Barry was born John Barry Pendergast in 1933 in York, England, a town best known for its narrow medieval streets, its cathedral, the York Minster and railroad junctions. Barry's father owned a chain of cinemas, which allowed a young John Barry to see his favorite action film, Gunga Din, over and over. Barry studied music from an early age and his mother, a well-regarded pianist, taught her son to play. Barry learned the basics of orchestration from a classical teacher at the York Minster Cathedral, and when Barry was drafted into the Army, he quickly began to provide orchestrations for the regimental band. When Barry returned to England, Barry was inspired by the new music coming from the United States, rock and roll. It was lean, jazzy, and had a new electric sound. In 1956, John Barry Pendergast only used his first two names when he formed a combo called the John Barry Seven, Barry wrote some songs, played trumpet, and even sang in the style of Elvis on a few singles. But it was the instrumental sound, which was cleaner than the American rock and roll, and attracted immediate attention. The John Barry Seven appeared on British music shows Six Five Special and Oh Boy. By 1959, the group released eight singles, all solid, but with no major hits. In 1960, singer Adam Faith chose Barry's group to arrange and play on a song, What Do You Want?, John Barry added four violinists to his group who were instructed to pluck their instruments, a style lifted from Buddy Holly's hit It Doesn't Matter Anymore, creating a style he called string beat. Adam Faith suddenly had a number one hit. Barry became Adam Faith's full-time arranger and created his own instrumental hit, Hit and Miss, which became the theme to the British pop music show Jukebox Jury. Barry's first movie score came with Adam Faith's film Beat Girl. Barry continued to release singles and scored the Amorous Mr. Prawn and the second Adam Faith film, Never Let Go. In 1961, Barry released the string beat album. In 1962, Barry was asked to rearrange some of the music for Dr. No. Out of that came Barry's recording of the James Bond theme with a single released on September 21st, 1962. It climbed to number 16 on the UK charts. Barry went on to compose the scores for 11 James Bond films. He also created the acclaimed music for films such as Zulu, Midnight Cowboy, Walkabout, Robin and Marion, Somewhere in Time, Body Heat, Francis, The Cotton Club, Jagged Edge, and Peggy Sue Got Married. He has won Academy Awards for his music for Born Free, The Lion and Winter, Out of Africa, Dances with Wolves, and was nominated for his score to Mary Queen of Scots and Chaplin.
5: was he? Like I said, a small fish. Working for a Mr. Largo. He's got a yacht we should take a look at later. Pleased
7: to see Mr. Largo.
6: Open up.
0: Now back to our conversation with Peter Hunt. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the revoicing of Adolfo Celli? Yes, there's
1: his real voice, of course. That's, all of that is is Adolfo Celli. Now when he turns around, uh, that goes up is he didn't say that in a a way that I could, that the audience could understand, and we, popped in three voice, but as I say, the revoice was exactly the same timbre, exactly the same tone. You would never know, and you are not supposed to know. If you did recognise it, it would be, uh, it would destroy the thing.
2: Hey there! Did you finally make contact?
5: You're late, Felix Leiter. This is Pinder, our man here. How do you do? This way, right, gentlemen. On, James. Paula Catlin, my assistant
0: John Hopkins discusses a little bit of his philosophy of dialogue.
6: I think the important thing for me about writing, and writing is dialogue, in films. I am mean, the director sets up the sequences, the shots, and the locations. My job is to provide the Dialogue, what the characters are thinking, what they're saying is our access to their um, thought process and why they are doing what they're doing. I have one thing to say about my own, as I understand my own technique of writing, is that far too much emphasis is placed on surprise. Um, That, certainly in humour... Surprise is all. I always have said, uh, when trying to uh, rationalise this, that when the Greeks went to the theatre, they knew what they were going to see. They knew the story of um, Oedipus and Electra and Clytemnestra and Agamemnon. They were all a part of their life, so that they didn't have to worry all the time. Will um, will Oedipus die? Will he put out his eyes? What will he do? They knew that. They could go down with the playwright into the darkness of the events of the story and emerge at the other end with an enlightenment which makes their life richer. Now, Obviously, the Bond films don't deal with events of that quality. They're not... um, It's not existential philosophy. Although, Bond represents a figure in our lives which has deeply affected our responses, particularly to heroes. Heroes are anti-heroes almost, without exception now, We were prepared to be represented by a man who sent people to their death and then had a catchphrase. Um, I think he got the point is the one that sticks in my memory over the years. When you're writing with a character as large as James Bond He is a mythic character in himself. And I tried to to present him not constantly worried about little. The film has to be so clean um, to go from the first sequence in Paris, the health spa, the um, parallel action of the plane going down, and then the threat from Spectre What I was trying to do was to make the forward movement as simple and direct as possible, so that people wouldn't be all the time thinking, what's going to happen next? Because that, Bond isn't a mystery, isn't a a detective story. Bond never ever says, you know, I've got to find this bomb because it'll be the end of the world if we, he says, we've got to find this mother, who is, has stolen this bomb and is the enemy. The enemy is very clear for Bond, and so uh, we, we assume he is thinking for us and that his enemy is our enemy. And working on the film, it was often very difficult not to get into this kind of debate, and yet you don't want to. I, I wrote an adaptation of a John le Carre book called um, Smiley's People. Uh, le Carre, the thing Le Carre does best is interrogation. So his books always have. There's, in Smiley's People, there's one of the most brilliant um, interrogations ever written by any, anyone other than Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment, where... Porphyry is one long investi- uh, cross-examination of Moskornikov. Bond doesn't interrogate. He does, we don't have scenes where he sits down with someone and says, what did you do then? His philosophy of action, it seems to me, is to decide which one is the villain and then nail him. And uh, if, in the meantime, he's gold stretches him out on a table, and, nearly cuts him in half with a laser beam Ready. and he survives it's his job to survive to survive for the moment when he's brought on to kick the field goal and win the game he's there he's always always waiting sometimes you have to take him out of the action and seem to be working out why he spends so much time in positions of um, imprisonment but His job is to stay alive and be ready for the big finish. And the big finish gets bigger and bigger. One thing I feel very important, a point to make, no one is casting any reflections on the other writers when writers are brought in to rewrite. It's just that a film is an event that has to be cherished and needs a great deal of thought and afterthought, because a play can take ten years to write. It can take, as Coward, with Noel Coward, it can take a couple of weeks. But a film is the work of a, a great many people. And you're all servicing the making of the film. You're not servicing your own ego. And when that happens, um, it's interesting. You think of Eric von Stroheim and how long he took filming Greed, and how long a film that was, um, 10 hours, maybe longer and it represented a man's vision of a book. Now, Bond was not that serious, but Bond made great demands on everybody who worked on it. It's no reflection on the other writers. I was not brought on to the film to uh, do better work than they had done. Uh, Their work was excellent. And Richard Maybaum wrote many very good films and was a producer. And it's not that I was doing better work than he had already done, but that attitudes towards Bond changed. These kind of gags, you want everyone you can get. So the writer makes his contribution the director, of course, is in charge of it all. And my encounter with Terence Young was probably the most rewarding part of the whole Thunderball experience. I met Terence uh, in London before we flew to Paris. And I remember i had already encountered his films. But uh, he was an extraordinary director and an extraordinary man with a great deal of, as has already probably been said, a great deal of charm. But the, the important contribution he made to Bond was that he achieved something which I think is uniquely English. Uh, he didn't let it become too serious and he developed the climate where it was possible for Sean to deliver his famous one-liners. And uh, there are many of them which have gone down in film lore. Terence said, we start at the beginning and we work our way through, but uh, not to destroy other people's work. The quality of Terence's jokes were often underrated. Whereas the quality of Sean's jokes were always appreciated because he was delivering and Terence was just letting you know that if you wanted to look more deeply into the fabric of the film, there was plenty there to keep you happy. His taste was extraordinary.
0: And now a little James Bond in the Spanish language.
7: Sí que salió, pero estuvo fuera seis horas solamente. Y desde luego no pudo recorrer 500 millas en ese tiempo, ¿no? En seis horas, unas 90 millas, siguiendo y, y viniendo a toda máquina. Convendría echar un vistazo a ese barco. De acuerdo, volvamos a Nassau. No tenemos mucho tiempo. No, no lo tenemos.
0: The foreign language versions of Thunderball reveal that some scenes in the film were cut in different countries. This scene was cut out of the Spanish version and was never dubbed.
2: You would like Bond dead?
8: I can think of no better arrangement.
2: Because he tries to make love to your woman?
7: Because he is Bond, and as an enemy of Spectre, should be
8: killed.
2: Mark! If Bond had died last night as a result of your hastiness, his government would have known for certain the bombs are here. When the time is right, he will be killed. Ho! I shall kill him.
5: Separate pool. For sharks, no less. Move in. Hold on that line. That's Lago's place, all right. My next port of call.
7: ¿Señor Largo? Sí, señor. Gracias. ¿Me permite?
3: Vaya, señor Bond. Claro que sí.
7: Eso suena sumamente incitador. (risa) Señor Bond... Bienvenido a Palmira, es un placer. Espero tan solo no haber interrumpido nada. No le comprendo. Creí que tal vez tuviera otra visita. No. Esta escopeta parece hecha para una mujer. ¿Entiende mucho de escopetas, señor Bond? No, un poquito de mujeres. Ah, Voy a presentarle. Señor Jenny, señor Vargas. ¿Quién es quién? Creí que había conocido al señor Vargas... ¿Anoche? Sí, me parece recordarle. ¿Le apetece, señor Bond? Muy bien, más o menos es la hora. Venga. Ah, es verdad, Vargas no bebe, tampoco fuma, ni va detrás de las mujeres. ¿Qué hace usted en la vida, Vargas? Todo hombre tiene su pasión, la mía es pescar. ¿Cuál es la suya, señor Bond? Uh, no soy lo que se dice, un hombre apasionado.
3: Oh. <laughs> es hora de que vaya a cambiarme.
7: Permite que le enseñe la finca. Tendré mucho gusto. <laughs> ya me lo figuraba.
0: This is another scene which was cut out of the Spanish version. In order to make the film closer to a two hour running time.
5: No, it isn't, is it? No.
7: (laughs) Colecciono estos ejemplares para varios acuarios de investigación. Magnificas criaturas. Adorables. Los famosos tiburones Gruta Dorada, los más salvajes y peligrosos. Saben que es hora de que les sirvan la comida. ¿Ese barco es suyo? El disco volante, sí. Estoy muy satisfecho con él. ¿Cuánto alcanza? ¿15 nudos? Bastante más. Casi 20. Puede que le gustase visitarlo. Ya lo creo muchísimo. Emilio, el almuerzo está servido. Gracias, querida. Venga usted, señor Bon. La crema de ostras está exquisita. Um, Dominó, he pensado que como esta tarde voy a estar muy ocupado, quizá el señor Bon tenga la bondad de acompañarte al Yunkanú. Es nuestro carnaval local. ¿Será mi invitado esta noche, señor Bon? Qué amable es usted. Tengo mucho gusto.
3: Hola. ¿Quién es usted? El señor Bond debe tener una opinión muy elevada de sí mismo. ¿Opinión? Sí. ¿Se ha citado también conmigo? No creo. Disculpe. chloroform.
0: Back to editor Peter Hunt. Ah, oh, the junk canoe, the
1: junk canoe. I was with a unit, a, ca- a handheld cameraman, wonderful cameraman he was, and we were going through the crowd and doing all the, Terence was up on a, on a, a balcony with the first unit doing all their crew and this dialogue, this balcony. And he shot most of the other things with this balcony with another camera further down. And uh, I whizzed around and did all the bits and pieces and inserts and whatever, which you'll see quite a few which you get shot.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how the junkanoo was set up and shot it was obviously a mammoth sequence of the huge... Oh,
1: they all did it. They were absolutely marvelous. All the people of the of Bahamas, they made their own clothes. Every year they have this, uh, this pantomime, this uh, yearly thing like a Mardi Gras, and they make all these uh, costumes and this whole procession themselves out of whatever they've got, paper and bits and pieces, and through the auspices, I suppose, of Kevin McClory, because he lived on uh, na- on the island, um, it was announced that we would have the junk canoe, we would have a special junk canoe, and a prize would be given for the special, for the one that would win, and they did indeed have a contest. And uh, the entire group of people that do it each year did it specially for us, and made all their costumes, and did all their thing, and came that night, and... Um, we worked through the night, two nights perhaps, two or three nights, I think, uh, with them recreating their junk canoe, as they called it.
0: And when you would edit dialogue back in the early days, uh, mm. and edit dialogue scenes, um, can you talk a little bit about the changes of, of from the early days of editing, where you'd edit off an optical track and a magnetic track? Yeah,
1: sure. Well, we used to edit everything on. I mean, we had no tape as they have now we used to have to, they recorded it onto an optical track which was photographic and then that would go with the dailies and be processed by the laboratory and the print of that would the laboratory would keep the negative as indeed they do the picture and a copy of the soundtrack a print from the set, would come back to the cutting room and we would work with that of course you could see the sound by the squiggles and, and marks on it and we could read it. We learnt, of course, uh, with an idea of what they were saying to be able to read where the S's and the E's were. and So we just used to put the sound in sync with the picture and edit the two together when we were cutting maybe action sequences or things that were quite simple. So. When suddenly they changed all that and we got uh, magnetic tape, you couldn't see, <laughs> and it's all supposed to make it did. It made it all much faster, except it was more difficult. I think we all had to get used to using this sound that you couldn't see. The very first film I did on it, I had all the all the uh, magnetic tape transferred <laughs> to optical, so that I could do it the old way. But eventually, of course, I learned and went on with it. But that's also another reason too, in those days, remember all those earlier films that you see, which were done with an optical soundtrack, we had to have the optical soundtrack Nick cut, and that generally took a couple of weeks uh, on a whole film. So the process was uh, certainly slowed down whilst the film was being uh, sound cut, and you couldn't mix it and dub it all until you got all your tracks and and that they were neck-cut so that they were correct and in sync. During which time, I must say, uh, you, you re- you know, looked at all your film and all your work and you worked at it again and you did a, all sorts of additional things with it. You had an opportunity to reassess certain things. So uh, I think that was one of the reasons why some of those old films are so much better than um, the present day. Films that you don't get a chance, the present day films, to reassess them and rework them and get more ideas.
0: As told on the documentaries which accompany these laser discs, these scenes with live sharks proved difficult to film. Ken Adams' department had to create this elaborate pool cover. In the Sullivan saltwater pool, a fake section of a pool had to be built because the sharks could not survive in a chlorinated freshwater pool. A fake corridor also had to be built, which looked like it connected the two pools. And then the sharks had to be forced through. Tuesday, April 27, 1965, proved to be a long night for the Thunderball crew. All of the key participants had to be at a press luncheon that afternoon and this entire shark pool scene had to be shot that night. Even the underwater cameraman, Lamar Bourne, had just spent the day shooting with Rico Browning's crew, so everyone was a little bit tired and a little bit nervous about working with the live sharks. The sharks themselves were reluctant participants and not very interested in biting anyone. Because the pool was so small, the sharks became listless and a few died. A team of shark wranglers worked hard to keep the sharks active, prodding them with long poles, Producer Kevin McClory used to delight in getting into the shark pool to prod the sharks into activity. Eventually, it is said, a shark tired of McClory's prodding turned and bit McClory's pole, snapping it in two. According to Terrence Young, McClory was very sensibly a little less eager about getting into the shark pool after that.
5: Stay with girl. I'll get back to him just as soon as I can. Anything else? Tell him Paula's dead. Okay.
0: Now back to screenwriter John Hopkins, as he remembers how he approached writing the character of Fiona Volpe.
6: Well, I was trying to balance someone in the film who was almost as good at the one-liners as Bond. She was a worthy adversary.
0: Paluzzi's character was created for the film Thunderball. Her name comes from a name screenwriter Jack Whittingham gave to a scientist, Carl Volpe, who worked for Largo in an early draft of the script before the novel was written. Her black widow-like character was originally named Fiona Kelly and was to have been Irish. Once Italian actress Luciana Pelluzzi was cast in the role, the name was changed to reflect her nationality. Well, you see, I had no idea that we were next door neighbors.
2: Oh, they just moved me down this afternoon. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Almost as if...
5: uh... As if it was intended. Yes, it uh, is extraordinary.
2: Shouldn't you get out those wet clothes? You'll catch your... death of cold.
8: <laughs> now, look. You know we're going to be too late.
2: Too late
8: for what? The junk canoe. I promised uh, my friends I'd meet there. Perhaps you know them. The Largos.
2: Questions, questions. All I get is questions. But the music is going to go on all night anyhow, enough to drive you wild. Do you like wild things, Mr. Bond, James Bond? Uh, (laughs) Wild? You should be locked up in a cage. Mm, This bed feels like a cage. All these bars. Do you think I'll be safe? Mess out of my area you
0: sadistic brute John Hopkins discusses writing this scene between Bond and Fiona Volpe.:
6: We were writing outside the characterization that we had set on, and were letting our, our audience know that we knew what they were saying and we were capable of answering them if we're going to let our audience know that we are we're playing this game, that we're using our characters to answer their the criticisms that we have. We have also to maintain the reality of the character. That scene in particular, I think, we've been working all day the day before, and we're getting towards that scene. And Terence said, I want you to go home now and uh, write this scene for tomorrow. Because uh, we're shooting it tomorrow, and I don't well, think we're ready to to do it. So it I went home. I worked most of the night. I, I I felt that I had been given a lesson, like something really significant to do, and uh, I worked very late. I got back to the studio, as you know, films always start ludicrously early, and particularly uh, if you're a writer. And um, I got there, and I I remember walking onto the soundstage and round the corner of the set, which was the bathroom set, and there was Sean, Luciana, Terence Young, and they had all written a scene overnight. And I, I walked on carrying my pieces of paper humbly, and uh, Terence, Sean said, no, they were doing the scene. That's right. And Terence was hearing their words. And I thought, that's not the scene. not the scene I wrote, certainly. You know, it's not the scene that they were working on. And Sean was very pleased with himself. He'd come up with a couple of one-liners that everybody thought were very funny. And I think, I think Luciana was more modest. She had suggestions, but she, hadn't written down the scene. And I thought, why did I take them at their face value and go home and work all night? Because I could have done this in the car coming in.
0: Back to our conversation with Peter Hunt and a bit of a shaggy dog tale.
2: So there's a contentious
0: dog coming up that apparently appears in a fair number of shots, but in one in particular, can you talk a little about one that? in particular?
1: Well, we saw in, in the dailies and that sort of thing. I was we saw them the dailies with the producers, who thought that was great that dog peeing in the middle of the shots, and actually when I cut the thing together, I didn't put the dog in, Well, I thought it was well wasn't very great or whatever. They <laughs> laughed at. It. And they suddenly said, where's the dog, Pete? <laughs> you don't want that shot of the dog. Yes, we do. <laughs> they said, All right, we'll put him in. I might tell you that there's a similar sort of chase that I did in Unimagined Secret Service when they're coming up to the ice. And I tried to improve it. I'm not sure I did. I've never been completely satisfied. One of these days, I'll do it again, and I'll try and get it even better. And you're in
0: both chases the same way.
1: Oh. You're not supposed I suppose if you keep running all these films one after the other you'll see, yes, yes, a few ideas get repeated.
0: Why anyone would want to repeat the Junkanoo scene with all of its complexities is hard to imagine. Aside from convincing the locals to create elaborate costumes and parade around all night, the filmmakers had to contend with the crowds that would show up on the Sunday and Monday nights of the shoot. Police estimated a crowd of 10,000 would show up for the not so impromptu celebrations. Even with the multiple cameras going, the scene proved uncontrollable. One group of paraders arrived with costumes emblazoned with 007 on their chests and hats. After all the work the group put into their costume, the filmmakers couldn't send them home, so they had to try to shoot and edit around them. You can clearly see the 007 marchers in the same shot with Peter Hunt's stray dog. Eventually, even after two nights of non-stop shooting, the filmmakers had to reassemble some of the paraders and shoot new material two weeks later. Back to our conversation with Peter Hunt. Now, originally this uh, was going to be called the Jump Jump Club until well, they decided Kiss Kiss Bang Bang would be the title song.
1: Well, you know how a Kiss Kiss Bang Bang came about, don't you? It's the Italians. The Italians used to call James Bond senior baccio baccio, bang, bang. And that's where the, where it came from. A lot of the um, local people who lived on the island uh, came and did um, extra work on the film and, you know, were invited by various people. You know, they didn't, they get rather bored and they, we found it very difficult to keep them. For instance, if you wanted them two or three nights, they didn't mind coming for one night. They thought it was all great fun but when it got down to the serious business, we need you to match the shot the next night or whatever. Sometimes they didn't turn up. So occasionally they were done in little little vignette, parts like that.
0: Some notes on the man providing the background music to this scene. The King-Arison Combo was a group playing at a local Nassau club called the Conch Shell. For the Combo's leader, born Arison Johnson, the exposure in a James Bond film gave him the chance to break out of Nassau. He first moved to Canada, where he studied drama, then formed his own band in New York. But hotel contracts continued to draw him, and he signed a year-long contract in Bermuda playing to tourists. A raunchy comedian named Red Fox played at the hotel at the time. After his contract was up, Arison packed up for Los Angeles to seek his fortune. Even filled with tremendous confidence and amazing skill with the bongos and other percussion instruments, Arison couldn't seem to get a break. Finally, he called Red Fox, who booked Arison into Fox's restaurant. Soon, Sammy Davis Jr. asked Arison to appear at the Hollywood Palace Theater for a television special. Arison soon became a favorite studio musician, working first with Cannonball Adderley, and later with groups like Blood, Sweat and Tears, and artists like Johnny Mathis, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Lou Rawls, The Carpenters, Barry White, Captain and Tennille, Herb Alpert, Quincy Jones, Barbara Streisand, and Thunderball vocalist Tom Jones. He has recorded extensively with The Jacksons, Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, and Doc Severinsen. King Arison has been seen in other movies since Thunderball, including Tap, The Jazz Singer, and Uptown Saturday Night. He has released 11 albums, including, as of this recording, his latest, Natural Feeling. King Arison has also been a featured player in Neil Diamond's band for over 19 years. His recordings with the Incredible Bongo Band gave him two number one albums. This small sequence back in England at the airbase and intelligence headquarters provides a nice marker for the audience, reminding the viewers that the world is counting on Bond. Even better is seeing the Home Secretary coldly chastising him for his faith in Bond. That personal touch. That Bond best not let M down carries more emotional weight with the audience than lectures on the destructive power of the stolen atomic bombs.
6: 007. I thought he was on something. I thought so too, sir. False alarm. I'm afraid
8: so. He obviously has a highly developed sense of, shall we say, drama. If
6: 007 thought he was on us. It's a great pity he didn't make sure before he started to shout the odds. Well, we have exactly 14 hours and 50 minutes. And then I suppose we shall have to pay up and look as happy as we can. Shan't we?
0: Now back to our conversation with Peter Hunt as he discusses continuity and keeping a story moving.
1: Now here we have a nice continuity piece, which one they're going left to right, which is all right. I like to keep everything in the, in, they don't seem to worry nowadays. I like to keep everything moving left to right if that's the way you're going or if the other way you're going right to left. Yes, everything is going left to right if I, and then they turn and go around the islands. So you get the idea that they really are looking
0: the only the part of this is, of that? is Leiter's pants. He's uh, in shorts at this point of the sequence.
1: Well, you're not supposed to see that. <laughs> For the sake of timing and good editing, you have to destroy continuity. Um, I remember the first time I ever did that, and it was on a scene in Healing Korea, and we've got four or five soldiers sitting around in a, in a bomb hole, you know, in, in the front and they're drinking tea and smoking cigarettes. Well, can you imagine the continuity in drinking tea and smoking tea with five soldiers individually for, uh, and grouped for a dialogue scene? They never put the thing up to their mouths at the same time or the cigarette at the same time, wherever you wanted to cut. There was always a difference in continuity. In the end, I ignored entirely the continuity, cut the whole thing together as it should have been, the right timing, the right um, shape to the whole sequence, and you never notice it. I defy anybody to see that and, uh, and notice it at the first, you know, within the story, the first sighting of it, the first showing of it. And from then onwards, I said, nonsense don't let's worry about continuity it's the timing of the sequence and the shaping of it that is important
0: thunderball is a film renowned for so-called continuity errors it is in fact a victim of its own success most of the editing tricks would not be noticed if fans had not watched this film over and over but there's a small army of fans that love to catalog the continuity jumps in the adventures of 007 in Thunderball, acute viewers point out the man hiding in the boat, which Domino and Bond bring to the beach at the Coral Harbor, or that while Bond is shot in the right leg as he runs into the Junkanoo Parade, he bandages his left leg when he cleans the wound at the Kiss Kiss Club. Later, Bond swims barefoot to the Spectre Frogman area, but emerges from the water with swimshoes to protect his feet. And in the final fight, Bond hits the captain of the Disco Volante with a ferocious blow, which knocks his hat off, But in the next shot, the hat is still on his head. That said, these should not be considered continuity errors as such, because in each case, Peter Hunt likely noticed the disparities and found a way to use the shots creatively. And that is the strength of a good editor. Back with Peter Hunt.
1: Oh, now he's got trousers on. I see. Okay, fine. That's what everybody goes on having. Now he hasn't got trousers on. <laughs> the pulling up of him out of the water. Okay. I'm always being uh, so many smart addicts to see that.
0: So watch if you're
1: following the story, you shouldn't see it. <laughs>
0: Can you talk a little bit about the atmosphere down in Nassau while you were shooting?
1: Oh, it was great. It was very good. They were very hospitable, everybody. It was lovely being down there. The weather, of course, was great, as we were concerned, having come from London. And um, uh, it all worked very well, I think. A little too well. I mean, the social life was tremendous. Terence and uh, Sean were always playing golf <laughs> and various things like that. and the people on the island were very hospitable and always giving us uh, parties and things like that on our day off and encouraging us with everything. I think uh, it was uh, it was a nice location from everybody's point of view. The hotel accommodation, of course, was very good. It was a big, big production.
3: Ow! Sea egg spines, they're poisonous.
9: Here, give me
0: your arm. Now let's listen to this scene in German.
9: Setz dich hin. So. Und dreh dich um. Sollte vielleicht ein bisschen weh tun ah. Ich habe noch nie eine Frau angeknabbert, aber es schmeckt nicht schlecht.
3: Du bist der erste Mann, der mich zum Weinen gebracht hat. Außer meinem Bruder Francois, als wir noch Kinder waren.
9: Domino, ich muss dir etwas sagen.
3: Oh, verzeih, James. Ich wollte dich nicht in Verlegenheit bringen, von Liebe reden zu müssen. Ich weiß Ich doch, muss
9: dir noch mal wehtun.
3: Du gehst weg. Das tut mir leid, aber es ist sicher besser so.
9: Es handelt sich um deinen Bruder.
3: Was ist mit ihm? Er ist, er ist tot. Was ist passiert?
9: In diese Geschichte sind viele verwickelt, unter anderem auch dein Freund Largo. Ich brauche deine Hilfe, Domino.
3: Ich verstehe. Nur deswegen hast du mich geliebt.
9: Ich kann dir jetzt nicht alles erklären, Domino. Aber du musst mir vertrauen.
3: Nur weil du willst, dass ich dir helfe.
9: Largo hat deinen Bruder ermordet oder zumindest geschah es auf seinen Befehl. Tausende, Hunderttausende müssen sterben und schon bald, wenn du mir nicht hilfst, Domino. So viel wissen wir, aber etwas wissen wir nicht. Die Bomben. Wann werden sie an Bord der Disco Volante gebracht?
3: Woher soll ich das wissen?
9: Das sollst du ja herausfinden. Es wird nicht leicht sein. Es kann für dich gefährlich werden.
3: Was kann man mir jetzt noch antun? Hilfst du mir? Ja.
9: Gut. Das ist ein Geigerzähler. Du musst diesen Knopf drücken. Wenn es anfängt zu ticken, bedeutet es, dass die Bomben an Bord sind.
3: Was muss ich dann tun?
9: Geh dann sofort an Deck. Die wird ständig beobachtet, man wird dich sehen.
3: Vorsicht, Vargas ist hinter dir. Ach ja? Er muss uns gefolgt sein.
9: Ja. Einer weniger von den Strolchen.
3: Schade, dass es nicht Largo war.
9: Largo. Wann erwartet er dich zurück?
3: Sehr bald. Er sagte, komm nicht zu spät und zwar sehr eindringlich.
9: Geh sofort zurück. Ich werde mich um Vargas und alles andere kümmern. James,
3: du musst verstehen. Ich tue das nur für meinen Bruder, weil er ihn umgebracht hat. Aber versprich mir eins. Egal, was passiert, Largo muss auch dran glauben.
9: Wir haben nicht mehr viel Zeit. Du hast
3: recht. Ach, mir ist etwas aufgefallen. Aber vielleicht ist es nicht wichtig.
9: Alles ist wichtig.
3: Auf der Klippe steht ein kleines Gebäude. Largo hat mir zwar verboten, hinzugehen, aber ich war mal da. Komisch, innen war nur eine Treppe.
9: Wohin führt die Treppe?
3: Hinunter ins Meer, am äußersten Ende von Palmyra. Ja, vielleicht ist es doch wichtig.
0: One of the reasons it is appropriate to listen to James Bond in foreign languages is because that is how much of the world saw him. The Bond films were a global phenomenon. In the United States alone, over 74 million persons saw Thunderball at the movie theater, adjusting Thunderball's domestic gross of 63.6 million for 1995 dollars it would have cleared 317 million in the United States alone. That is as big of a hit as Jurassic Park, the top-grossing film of all time. By contrast, 1995's Bond film GoldenEye, which was a huge hit in the U.S., drew less than half as many moviegoers to the theaters. This doesn't diminish GoldenEye's status as a blockbuster, and in 1965, moviegoers could scarcely imagine being able to purchase their favorite movies on video, or rent them less than a year after they played at the theater. Nonetheless, it is hard to imagine the fervent fandom which surrounded Thunderball's release. Even the film's re-releases with From Russia With Love and later You Only Live Twice in the United States and with Goldfinger in the United Kingdom were huge box office draws. Considering the size and scope of Thunderball's success, It is all the more surprising what happened to the film over the years. First, many suspect that the film was altered after it was originally released, chopping off the credit which announced James Bond will return. Some claim the credit originally read, James Bond will return and on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Others say the credit was cut off before the film was released. Whatever the case, the original negative was cut and the film was lost forever with the insertion of an awkward fast fade out at the end. When the film was resurrected on video though, the real mystery began. On the initial video releases, including the RCA video disc release, one of the scenes with Bond massaging Patricia Fearing with a mink glove was excised. In later versions, other small differences became apparent. Bond's line as he exits the pool was different. When Bond and Leiter see a manta ray from a helicopter, the voice of actor Earl Cameron who plays Pinder was heard commenting on it. Odd since Pinder's not in the scene. Many of these differences are detailed in an additional supplement on this LaserDisc. In 1994, the Ian Fleming Foundation did a comprehensive study of the different versions of the film, which was used to help restore Thunderball for this LaserDisc release. In addition to the many differences in lines, it became apparent that the version previously available on video had inferior sound edits. MGM UA Home Video worked to recreate the original sound of Thunderball, by remixing the film and by replacing the music with cleaner stereo digital elements. The result is the clean stereo surround mix available on this Laserdisc. Missing sound effects, such as the closing of the underwater hatch on the disco volante, have been restored. The music has been carefully restored to match the original score released in theaters in 1965. Even though the film is now available in stereo for the first time, care has been taken to match the balance and tone of the original mono mix. In short, this release not only restores the film to match the theatrical version, it also provides a stunning new viewing and listening experience for fans who have seen the film many times. One of the differences between the original theatrical release and the earlier video releases is during the upcoming fight between Bond and Largo in the pins where Largo is hiding the atomic bombs. On pre-1995 video versions, this fight was devoid of music. Here John Barry's music, which is also used in the pre-credit sequence, can again be heard during the fight. Now back to our conversation with Peter Hunt, who talks about the challenge of creating a soundtrack to the underwater action and other topics.
1: You must remember there were no sound crew down there under the water with us. All the sound had to go on to it afterwards. We only had camera people down there. We didn't have sound down there. All this sound was made. This was all what you call Foley. <laughs> Afterwards, and there was a great deal. I had a great deal of humming uh, and hawing and thought, and what have you, about all these underwater sounds. You know, these these uh, tank sounds and the breathing sounds, where we saw the water going up. Great deal of deliberation went into what sort of noise we would have for the.
0: Well, this is a good place to talk about some of the elements of post-production. Terence Young was on a very busy production schedule. After he finished up Thunderball, he went immediately into pre-production on a film for the United Nations called Danger Grows Wild. Mm. Um, uh, How? Uh, so he was not available very much during the editing part of this.
1: Not you available
0: at all. He
1: never saw a completed copy of the film. Uh, in my presence, anyway, um, must have been much late in that. He was, uh, he was off doing that film in the south of France because he needed a break, and he simply said, uh, there you are, dear boy, get on with it. And uh, I finished it and dubbed it and did everything and delivered it. Thunderball was the first time, in fact, that I was able to put off the actual screening of it, I mean the actual premiere of it. Because it was such a large film and needed such a lot of work on it, we probably edited and worked on it much longer than any of the others. And United Artist David uh, Arnold Picker came and saw me in London. And I was able to convince him that we could not make whatever the release date they had at that time.
0: Well, up until Thunderball. The films have been released in England in September.
1: That's right. They were planning perhaps to do the same thing, and they had already done that without any consultation with me or with how we were going to finish it, expecting us to do the same thing. And this was such a big film and so difficult that it was impossible to make to give it um, the polish and the the finish that we'd always done on all the others. And Arnold Picker was very interesting and listened to everything I had to say. We had a breakfast at the Dorchester Hotel, and I think it must have cost them a great deal of money and prestige and doing things. But afterwards, he said, all right, we will put it off for for three months so that you've got an extra 12 weeks to do what you're talking about. Uh, And I said, great, then we'll make a successful film. And he said, i never forget him, he said, I will remember that, and if it isn't a successful film in 12 weeks that I give you, I shan't forget.
7: A private little man and I
1: must say, well, well, the rest is history, of course.
7: Do not live in hope, my dear, there is no one to rescue you. <laughs>
0: This is a good place to talk about actor Rick Van Nooter, who plays Felix Leiter. Van Nooter was born in California and became a location manager. In Europe, he met actress Anita Ekberg and thus landed a job on the Saltzman Broccoli produced Call Me Buana. Van Nooter went on to act in a number of European productions, including the minor hit Romanoff and Juliet with Peter Ustinov. In an interview at the time of Thunderball's release, Van Neuter said he got the chance to play Felix Leiter when he had dinner with Dana and Cubby Broccoli. At one point, Broccoli announced that Van Neuter looked just like Felix Leiter. Indeed, Rick Van Neuter looks as close as any actor to Fleming's description of Leiter in the first two Bond novels. Rick Van Neuter tested well and was signed to a contract for many more Bond films. He even planned to move to London. Unfortunately, the filmmakers could not find a way to get Felix Leiter's character into the next two Bond films, You Only Live Twice and On Her Majesty's Secret Service, so predictions of a long relationship fizzled out. Van Neuter starred in many more Italian films and gained some notoriety for some of the more bizarre science fiction titles he appeared in.
5: Warn them the target is Miami. Also the bomb is transferred from the Disco Volante onto a wreck of Bowie Point. Right. Hang on to that.
0: Now back to Peter Hunt.
1: André de Toth went over to Miami and shot the, um, the aquaparas. He went over there with the union. This, this, we left the aquaparas for some reason, I'm sure because of a production thing or of getting them to fall or whatever, until um, later on. We probably finished everything by then. And André, uh, who was a friend of great friend of uh, Harry's, most people and I'd known him for some time, very nice man, and a very experienced, of course, man. He went over and uh, with some unit or other and shot the hair stuff.
0: Andre de Toth was an interesting character who moved in and out of the world of James Bond. De Toth gained notoriety as the one-eyed director of a 3-D film, House of Wax. Later, working as a producer, he helped Harry Saltzman with two of the Harry Palmer films. He came back into Cubby Broccoli's life after directing the Michael Caine film, Play Dirty, and helped arrange locations in Egypt for The Spy Who Loved Me. His autobiography, Fragments, details his amazing career. Back to our conversation with Peter Hunt.
1: Well, it was a great deal of material, you must remember. And I mean, we've been seeing daily's constantly about this. The underwater unit were wonderful at what they'd done and what they had done. And there was a lot of material, of course, that went wrong and didn't go right. It was a very difficult thing to shoot them. I mean, it was like a cowboy and Indians underwater. It wasn't easy. It wasn't horses. You couldn't just move them around. So it was. It, it took quite a time. We, we saw dailies, and we, were, we had a big editing room in, in the Bahamas right by, right next to where they used to go down and shoot this. So we could see uh, what we got. We did have to leave them at one point and they were continuing on when we moved back to London. Anyway, by the time I finished editing it and getting it all together, I made, I think it last about four minutes. I tried desperately, if I could, or there was no dramatic reason to make most of the sequences in the Bond films uh, around three minutes. I don't think you'll find many over that length. Anyway, because it was all this underwater stuff and it was very good, people were very impressed with it. I made, I I cut it down to about four, four minutes. And my producers and everybody around who'd seen it in a longer version when they saw that, they said, oh, no, 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 it's all so good, make it longer, make it longer. <laughs> and I said, all right, okay, and I went away and worked at it. And I think it's come out at about nine or ten minutes, eight or nine minutes, perhaps. I can't remember for exactly after all this time. But I, I honestly believe that it's just that little bit too long. But it, uh, it's never been done on the screen before, or again since, as well, I don't think. And it was a spectacular sequence.
0: John, Barry's, John Barry really pulled out all the stops. Well, he had
1: the... to, because, uh, you know, once said, what are we going to do? This is all underwater, and I've got all this noise going on, which we don't know whether it's real or unreal, <laughs> which we've made up. And there was a point, especially when it had gone to about eight or nine minutes of a sequence, where I think um, we needed some music to, to lift it and, and move it along.
0: Much of the hardware and effects in this sequence were managed by Jordan Klein. Klein became a pioneer in underwater photography after leaving the Navy. He formed a company which manufactured the popular Mako Shark underwater camera in 1962, Klein began designing and building underwater motion picture cameras. Even before then, Klein worked on the major underwater adventure films, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and Hello Down There. Klein designed the gadget-laden backpack in this scene, but at least one gadget was totally misused. The bright green smokescreen was designed for Bond to use to escape from his enemies. But since Bond spins the cloud of dye when he is moving forward, it serves no purpose whatsoever. When Thunderball was awarded an Oscar for Best Special Effects in March of 1966, Jordan Klein, who contributed to the underwater effects, accepted the award on behalf of John Steers. One person, who is not able to contribute much to this scene is Sean Connery. It is a testament to his screen presence that the film continues to move, even though Connery is only seen in a few close-ups during the entire battle. Screenwriter John Hopkins remembers writing for and working with Sean Connery.
6: That personality, what Sean Connery brought to the character of Bond, was a depth and a philosophical attitude which released him from responsibility. Because I've always felt that the most rewarding aspect of Thunderball for me was that I met Sean Connery and had the chance to work with him and work with him again in a film some years later. He's an extraordinary man. I've seen him do work as good and usually better than anyone in the area of characterization that most suits. And the time I am meeting Sean on that, on Bond, led to the film called The Offense.
0: Sean Hopkins on his biggest regret on Thunderball.
6: The shooting schedule had finished the work they were doing in England, and the whole crew, cast, and production staff was moving out to the Bahamas. I was I had started work on Funeral in Berlin*, reading it, because it was a very dense and complex structure. And uh, I read it at least 10 times before I began work on any of the screenplay. And um, to my eternal regret, because uh, I, I felt that I had a responsibility. I took myself rather more seriously in those days than I hope I do now. Um, I felt that the object of my next six months should be writing and rewriting and revising the screenplay for Funeral in Berlin. Um, Len Dayton's book, which Harry Saltzman had hired me to prepare. Harry said, you can work in the mornings on Funeral in Berlin when they're filming, and then you'll be available to work on Thunderball at night. And I I made a real blunder. I said, no. But I'd never been to the Bahamas at that point. I have since. And it's so beautiful. I, I should have listened to Sean and gone with the crew and taken advantage of the situation rather than feeling that in that British Puritan ethic that you can't do well anything that you really enjoy. That to be able to do your best work, you've got to be suffering. Um, very doubtful ethic and one that I have no problem with ignoring today. Uh, I don't have to be uncomfortable to do good work. Um, so they went off to the Bahamas, taking all the pretty girls and to that sun-baked place, and I stayed home like an idiot.
0: Indeed. John Hopkins did miss out on an amazing circus by not going to Nassau. Aside from the film stars, Rick Van Nooter's wife, Anita Ekberg, was hanging around the set, as was Ringo Starr, who had just finished shooting the Beatles' film, Help. Ed Sullivan came down to shoot a piece for his show. Even while the film was shooting, the Bond merchandising boom was rocking the globe. After Goldfinger started breaking records in France, over $3 million in Bond merchandise was sold in February and March of 1965 in that country alone. The London Hilton, which was only a few yards from the producers' Audley Street offices, opened a 007 bar, complete with props from the first three films. It remained in business until the late 1970s, when it was replaced by a disco. In May of 1965, a few products were on the shelves in the United States. Spatz brothers had 007 raincoats, although Bond had never worn a raincoat in any of the films or novels. Milton Bradley's first James Bond game was selling in toy stores. For Bond fans in Syracuse, New York, and Kansas City, Colgate Pomalov was test marketing its James Bond shaving cream and aftershave. Marvin Glass, who purchased the rights to make James Bond brand toy jewelry, told Newsweek that Bond was, quote, the modern equivalent of the demigods of the past, Hercules and the Prometheus type. This is a Bondanza. By fall, T-shirts, slacks, shoes, dress shirts, and an elaborate weapon and gadget-filled toy briefcase had hit the market. Kids and adults alike remember Christmas 1965 as the year Santa brought everybody something from James Bond. Jay Emmett, who marketed James Bond for the Licensing Corporation of America, tapped into the potential theme for Thunderball in defining Bond's appeal. He said, we call him Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Bang Bang for the kids, and Kiss Kiss for the adults.
8: It
9: now and the arming device into the seat Do you understand
0: yes back to peter hunt who talks about the spectacular final fight
1: well they were Terence's ideas about the fire of the of the actual fighting of the uh, throwing him down there Terence with bob simmons i'm sure uh, but um, because i wanted to make it all move faster as it were and You know, we've had so many car chases and uh, boat chases and things like that. I wanted to give it a sort of uh, excitement. And so I frame cut it. This is full frame cut. And with the music, it worked. Because it's a highly improbable situation, the whole thing, uh, going through these rocks. hoped, I hoped that I achieved an excitement with it. I think I did actually. I think what I remember now what I tried to do, I tried to frame cut the outside shots, as it were, so the boat went out of control and moved very much faster than it had been shot. And I found that every time then I cut back inside and it was normal speed, that it slowed it all down again, and that I didn't get any excitement out of the actual fighting of it. I decided then to frame cut it all until the moment at the end comes, which was you know, the earlier part of this shot, when finally Dolphicelli
0: gets up with the gun. Thunderball's enduring success is a testament to the entire creative team, particularly the producing skill of Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. Thunderball is one of those films that seems like it should be a colossal creative failure. The fourth film of a very popular series which requires the filmmakers to fit into a certain mold and still try to top all the previous successes. These ingredients could spell disaster for lesser filmmakers and indeed, in many ways the collective talent on Thunderball proved that in some cases, the whole can be greater than the sum of the parts. Now for one last production story from Peter Hunt and then a special surprise. Originally, Bond was not supposed to be picked up by the Skyhook Sea Rescue plane. Peter Hunt remembers the first raft that Bond and Domino crawled into.
1: Originally, they designed something with a tent to do the tent up, and I remember a lot of hoo-ha about it. Try, they tried to shoot it, or they did shoot something. It took forever putting up the tent, and the tent was not very satisfactory at all.
0: Now for the audio track for a contest to find actresses for the next Bond film which was supposed to be on Her Majesty's Secret Service. When You Only Live Twice was selected as the next film, the contest was shelved.
5: This is a man on a hunt, a girl hunt. He's closing in on 12 girls, 12 warm, wild, wonderful girls who'll appear with him, very near him, in his next motion picture. And one of them might be you. But I must warn you, this man has impeccable taste. He knows what he wants, and he gets it. He made them say yes in Dr. No. He made them more than comrades in From Russia With Love. He made them flip in Goldfinger. And in his latest picture, Thunderball, the biggest bond of all, he makes it again. If you are one of the 12 warm winners of his girl hunt, he'll take you to the frozen Alps to appear with him in his next picture on Her Majesty's Secret Service. There will be one from the Far East, one from Scandinavia, one from the Benelux countries, Italy, France, Germany, Great Britain, Canada, and four from the United States. This man means business. Only 12 special girls can satisfy him. 12 warm, wild, wonderful winners For featured roles and perhaps stardom in his next Ian Fleming thriller on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Incidentally, in case you're wondering who this man is, his name is Bond, James Bond.